as we continue to talk about transformation. And if, uh, for those of you that can remember, uh, we've been talking about, uh, we started about four weeks ago talking about what we were created for. How we were created for responsible work, caring for each other and this planet that God has given us. That's what we were created for. And then sin breaks into that. And we, we called, uh, we, we said that, that, that sin was the, the as, as uh, Francis Bufford said, the human propensity to fudge things up. That was there's something in us that is bent on, on destruction. We watch that come in through Adam and Eve, and that still infects us. That by, by choice and by disposition, we destroy ourselves and the things around us, and we cannot repair it on our own. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is this repair. Because the reality is we don't just call, have a faith that says, oh, by the way, you were created for greatness, but now you're terrible. And that's the end of the story. Have a good day. Our faith is, it brings us somewhere else, that there is repair in there, that, that that's part of our story, that we are not just left with the fig leaves, right? And, and it's interesting, we want, so even as we talked, watched in this story that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, I want us to look at like the kinds of words that are used to describe sin in the Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, the most common word to describe sin is just this word, word hatah. Shut up, but it's hot, 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 those who, who are in authority, or, or, or Pasha, which is, which is a general iniquity, and, 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 and kind of, it's, it's also a word for twisting, to twist things in, in, into a way that they ought not to be twisted. But it's interesting that the main word that, we, that is used to talk about sin is just this miss. And that's carried over to the New Testament as well, that when, in the New Testament, in Greek, in an entirely different language, that when they begin to discuss this concept of sin, it's pretty much the same word. This hamartia just means to miss. They just translate it in the same way that, that, that Christ or Christos means anointed one, which is the same way that Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. They're the same word in the same way the words for sin are exactly the same and congruent. It's missing the mark, that you aimed for something and you didn't get it. You got something else instead. And it's interesting how we, we get to this story where, where Adam and Eve, when we told the story last week of Adam and Eve when they sin, they begin to cover themselves and they, and they try to cover themselves in fig leaves. And as I, as I showed you in a picture last week, and I should have showed you again, fig leaves are very small and ineffective at covering up, covering up our messes. And that's intended to be a funny story implying to us the metaphor of that, whether you believe that it's literal or metaphorical, the, the, the point of that story is that we are incapable of repairing ourselves on our own, that God has to meet us. And in that same story, we do see that, that in Genesis chapter 3, 21, immediately afterwards, that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. So right at the beginning, as soon as we have this, this fracture in who we are that begins to make us not who we've been called to be, immediately God meets us in the middle of our miss. 
God meets us in our mess. God meets us exactly where we are and provides a way for us to transform and to change. God makes our problem his problem, and he's done so from the beginning. And that's an amazing thing to just sit in for a second. There's this social media tendency where somebody tells you a basic fact, and then they put in afterwards, let that sink in. It's like, if something is really that I need to sink in, you don't have to tell me to absorb it. I will just absorb it because it's shocking enough. But this is something that I want us to sit in for a little bit. That God has always made, since the beginning, our problems his problem. He's chosen to do that. Because we're incapable of doing it ourselves. I think of, I think of, I think of myself, uh, I, I think of, uh, well, there's a story uh, that, that I'm going to mess up, but Teddy uh, knows it better than I did, that um, there was, uh, when, when Zoe was a, a very young child, uh, sorry Zoe, um, she loved the color pink. And she started to be able to get up on her own, am I telling this story accurately? And, and she went downstairs one morning before we got up and proceeded to paint the couch pink. Um, with nail polish, yes. Now, now let's be honest, Zoe's intention in this moment was not to destroy the couch, right? Zoe's intention, Zoe's intention at this moment was to improve the couch, but she missed, right? Her intention was there, but the reality is this is still a problem that needed to be fixed. And and as parents, we would have been justified and well within the rights of the way, uh, 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 it would have been fair for us to be say, okay, well, you now clean up the couch, right? But how effective is that going to be? How, how, how good is she going to be at cleaning up the mess that she made? And it's interesting how, so we had to meet her in the mess, and I didn't, I stayed asleep. I didn't, I found out it ap- about it after I woke up. But Teddy took care of it, and Teddy had to meet her in that mess. I'm very honest about these things. Teddy had to meet her in that mess and take care of it on her own. In the same way, God meets us in our mess. Like you, you tried something, it was a big mistake, but I'm going to meet you in the middle of it. And he takes garments and he clothes this. You can't fix this, you need some help. So that's the pattern from the very beginning. And then that pattern continues as God begins to make the people of Israel. As he gives them the instructions, he tells them, okay, so when someone sins unintentionally, this is what you do. Now, I want to be clear because there's this misunderstanding sometimes that exists about the law, that, that, that the Israelites were these horrible people who brought in the sacrificial system and then made everybody to conform to it. And that's simply not true. Historically, all sorts of cultures, all sorts of religions, all sorts of ancient peoples all had sacrificial systems. What made the Israelites different was how codified theirs were. Because it seemed like with Baal and Ashtaroth and, and, and the other gods of the time, they didn't have codified ideas of how you sacrificed in order to make your sins right. So you had to guess. Have I, have I done enough? Is this enough bulls? Is this enough grain? Is this enough? And what happens is, in, the, in, in those ancient religions, they would bring sheep, and then they would bring goats, and then they would bring go- and then they would bring bulls, and they would bring rams, and there would be more and more destruction, more and more sacrifice, and still things aren't going what they want. And ultimately, the end goal of that game is that they would end up sacrificing their children. That's just the nature of the ancient world. 
And that's why the people of Israel danced with the Torah and loved it, because they said, what a great God we have that told us what to do. He's not making us guess. He's meeting us in the midst of our misses and saying, okay, this is what you do. If anyone sins unintentionally and does what is uh, forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, or if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a, a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sins he committed. This is really interesting right off the top. Because it's not if you sin. It's not if you sin unintentionally. And it's not like, well, this sin was unintentional, so it doesn't matter. We're only concerned about the intentional sins. This is a, If you miss... This is how you fix it. And it's even interesting that right off the bat, as they start to bring this, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, there's somehow where the actions of leadership, whether we like it or not, affect the people, whether we like it or not. That's why it's important for you guys as elders and you guys as a congregation to hold me to account. Because if I sin, even unintentionally, it affects the entire congregation whether we like it or not, okay? So, but there's a way to get through this. He provides instructions on what to do. There's a need to be, to be held accountable. So, but he says, this is what you do. And there's a whole process of like, this is the animal that you take. This is how you butcher it. This is, these are the parts that you burn here. These are the parts that you burn there. And these are the parts that you do all sorts of different things. And this continues throughout the entire book of Leviticus. It happens the whole time. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally, if all y'all sin unintentionally, there's something to do. When a leader sins unintentionally, so that's someone like me. If I, oh man, I really, I, I thought I was doing this, but I, then I ended up doing this. There's something to do. If a mem any member of the community sins unintentionally, if anyone sins because they do not speak up when they hear a public charge testifying about something that they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. It's, it's interesting. In, in, right in the book of Leviticus, it seems that, that, that not speaking the truth and lying are the same thing. Um, if anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, if they un unwittingly touch anything ceremonially unclean. So, so leaders, members, people who break religious laws, and this continues, people who, who, cheat, who cheat their neighbor. There's a specific regulation about what to do and how to address it. And what's interesting about the, and, and not only how to address it, but how to make it right. And this is an indictment on every human. No one is exempt from this. It's not only leadership. It's not only the people at the bottom. Every single human being, when you mess up, this is what you do to make it right. And we miss the point of the sacrificial system if we think that it's about the sacrifice. Because if uh, just as much as there are instructions on how to butcher the animals properly and what to do with them, and just as much as there are instructions about the various ways that you can fail, that every point of this story is when you do these things, they will be forgiven. When you sin unintentionally and you do it right, you will be forgiven. When the leader sins unintentionally and makes it right, they will be forgiven. If a member of the community sins and they make it right, they will be forgiven. If someone who cheats their neighbor sins and they make it right, then they will be forgiven. If someone who, 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 who steals from their neighbor sins and they make it right, they will be forgiven. Everyone will be forgiven. That's the point of all this. So there's a pro the whole point is God making it right with these people. I'm meeting you in the midst of your mess, and I'm going to fix it. Your problem is my problem. And once we've repaired this problem, go and live your life.
they will be forgiven, not halfway, not in a halfway where it's like, okay, I've forgiven you, but I'm actually still holding a grudge, you know? And anytime you fail at any point in the next 75 years, I'm going to bring up this moment, right? That's not what we're doing. We're not going to define the person that, by that action, but this, this word for forgiven is a legal word. And it's legal in the context that, that if you are in trial in the future, you cannot be held to account for this crime that has happened to you in the past. That, that, that legally, this is done and buried. This is never brought up again. The records are sealed. So forgiveness equals freedom. And through the sacrificial system, God worked into people's minds and hearts that, yes, you're going to miss. And when you miss, admit that you missed, and then do what you have to do to make it right. And once you have admitted it and made it right, then there is forgiveness on the other side of it. It's so interesting for us because we all work so hard to justify our own actions. We work so hard to say, like, yeah, I'm, uh, I didn't really miss. I, I was trying to make the couch more beautiful. So, so I didn't really miss. I didn't really, I, I, I didn't really sin. I didn't really do the wrong thing. I was trying to do the right thing. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you tried to do. The, matter, the, the, the reality is you missed. You made a mess. Now we got to clean it up. I didn't, it wasn't me who did it. It was, it was, I was just a product of my environment. And it's like, okay, wonderful. You still missed. We're not denying the fact that you're a part of your environment. But somehow, you've made choices that have hurt yourself and other people. And now it's got to be cleaned up. Now it's got to be fixed. There's no point in denying that we do not miss. There's no point in denying that we do not sin. It keeps us from the freedom and the forgiveness that were promised. We work so hard to make our misses not misses, and yet our misses acknowledging them is an essential part of the entire path to freedom. God's method of repair in the Old Testament seems to be that you miss, you repent. So you sinned, and now you repent. You have to acknowledge that you've sinned. You can't go through the barbecue process, which is like I bring an animal, somebody does something, we cut it, we burn different parts, we do different things. You can't even enter into that process without admitting that I've done something wrong here. Something needs to be fixed. So this process is that you acknowledge that you missed, you see your actions in the same way that God sees your actions, right? You don't try and justify yourself and say, like, I really think the couch would look better covered in pink nail polish. We could, should just take this, this, the, 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 this idea onto its full completion, right? You don't argue about that. You repent. You move on to the process. And on the other side of that is forgiveness. And it wasn't guessing. But on the other side of that forgiveness, there was true freedom. There was freedom in that. You did not have to live in your sins constantly. But it wasn't perfect. Because we see very quickly throughout the Bible that there are people who are doing the barbecue process. They're doing the sacrificial process. They're doing all of those things. And yet God is still not pleased and they're still not forgiven. We see this in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. This is repeated throughout the process. 
sorry, throughout the prophets. All of the prophets talk about like you're following the law, but it doesn't matter because you're not really following the law. You can practice, in the Old Testament, you could practice this barbecue process, but without repentance, it doesn't matter. So if you're just like, yeah, we're going to go through the motions, like, okay, so there's some sort of general sin that's going on, we're going to do the sacrificial thing, but then you go out the very next day and you still exploit your neighbor and steal from them, if you go out the next day and you still beat your slave or the per people who work for you, as happened in the Old Testament, if you still go out the very next day and rob from the poor and provide unequal access to the justice system, which is one of the major beefs that God has with the people of Israel in the Old Testament, if you change nothing about your behavior, the process that you've engaged in doesn't matter. And the reason why your behavior hasn't changed is because there's been no repentance. You haven't acknowledged that they, they haven't, hadn't acknowledged that they've sinned. They hadn't acknowledged that they missed. They didn't know that there was something going wrong, or they, or, or they, or they fought against it. So the essential ingredient in this process is not the sacrifice. It's not the blood of bulls and goats and rams. The essential, the essential part of this process is repentance. Acknowledging your sin, acknowledging that you've missed the mark, acknowledging that you haven't done everything right, and then moving through the process into forgiveness and freedom. And this is what the writer of the book of Hebrews says, because we know that Jesus stepped into place to eliminate the sacrificial system and to provide a better way for us to move through this process of repair. This is from Hebrews chapter 10. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. We just read this. He set up the process. The process was good, and it was fine. But if you did the, pro the barbecue process without repentance, then it doesn't matter, and God's, in fact, angered by it. If there's no change on it on the other side, it doesn't really matter. Though these were offered in accordance with the law, he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. This is Jesus. Jesus sets aside the first law, and by that, we have all been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. So now, our methodology of repair is different. Most of the pieces are still there. We still miss the mark. We still sin. It's not like sin happened in the Old Testament and we don't sin anymore. We still sin. We miss. We need, still need to repent. In fact, the first word of the good news of the gospel is Jesus arrives and says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Acknowledge and say out loud that you messed it up. There's only freedom when you acknowledge that you messed it up. And now take all of that mess up, acknowledge that, take that hurt that you feel, that pain and that burden that you feel, because you're just like, I, I can't make this right. I, I, I can't fix this on my own. Take that and lay it on Jesus. And when we lay it on Jesus, the promise is that on the other side of that is freedom complete and full freedom. So we don't have to live in that mistake anymore. We don't have to live beating ourselves up for all of the ways that we failed before. If we're genuinely laying it on Jesus, then there is genuinely freedom on the other side of it. And it's interesting to me that the entire way that this seems to work throughout, throughout the Bible is that God's forgiveness is always available to us. His forgiveness is, is, is poured out abundantly. That his forgiveness is just given away over and over and over again. 
but the barrier is whether or not we're willing to acknowledge that we need forgiveness. Because if we in no way acknowledge that we need forgiveness, then there can be no forgiveness for us. Unless we're willing to place ourselves in a place where we recognize that I've done wrong, and even though I tried to do the best thing, I, I hurt people, I hurt myself, I had, I had standards that were unreasonable, I had habits that were destroying me and the people around me, I thought that I could find something that would make me feel good in a way that God does, but it didn't actually work long term, and that hurt me and hurt the people around me. Until we acknowledge that, then we can't experience the freedom that is available in Jesus. This is what John says in 1 John. And I love, I love the letters of John because um, when John writes his letters, he's, a, he's, a, he's an elderly man. He's the oldest of the disciples. He's lived longer than anyone else. And, there's, and, and you, it sounds like the writing of an elderly person when you read them to my ears because it's filled with like wisdom but also simplicity. When you're young and you're wise, you want to prove to everyone how wise you are by having the fanciest words. John does not care about that whatsoever. So he's not afraid of saying something like a six-year-old, even though he's a, man, a wise man in his 80s, because he doesn't really care. If you don't think he's wise, that's on you. But he says this, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Confession, repentance, coming clean about who you are and what you've done and all of the ways that you've tried to make something better and still made a mess, that is essential to us living in the freedom that is offered us in Jesus. There is no way to freedom without it. And if we insist on trying to justify our own actions and saying that, yeah, well, and trying to say that what we did, that our sins were not sin, then we're never going to get anywhere. We're just going to continue to be stuck in the same patterns of behavior that we've been stuck in forever. And that's individually and collectively. So what do we do? Because we still do this. We refuse to repent. So what do we do? We repent. We repent. And we repent not fearfully because I'm afraid that I'm going to be rejected. We repent joyfully because that's what we've been invited into. Because God looks at our actions and he's like, you're trying so hard to say that these sins, these misses weren't misses. I know the whole thing. In the same way that like a child might try and cover up uh, a nail polish painted couch by throwing a blanket on top of it. God knows what's under the blanket. We're not fooling anyone. So we don't have to shrink back as we enter into repentance. We ought to joyfully enter into repentance. Because what he's promised is not that he's going to be mad at us, but that he's going to clean the couch. And it's the same thing that he promised us. We're like, oh, you're going to be mad at me because I've sinned. And it's like, yeah, but we're going to clean up your messes. We're going to give you the power to make things different so that you don't do the exact same things over again. So that we're not cleaning up this mess again a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. That's what we do. And we enter into that joyfully. 
So I would ask us, because we do this every single week. Every single week we come here, and this is an important thing to do, and it's a beautiful thing to do, that we remember the Lord's death until he comes again. It's incredibly important and essential for us to do. But it's also important for us to remember what that process did, what Jesus did in that moment. And he provided for the forgiveness of sins. So it's fair for you and for us to acknowledge what we have done that placed Jesus on that cross, that made that repair necessary. So I would ask you, in the next couple of minutes as we silently prepare for communion, that you would repent. Not out of fear that if anybody finds out about this, then, then, then I'm going to be rejected, or if, if I acknowledge this is sin, that God would reject me. But, but repent joyfully. Repent joyfully knowing that, that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you while you're yet a sinner. While you're still messing up. While you're still sinning. This is my body. Why are you holding back from acknowledging that you've sinned when this is my body? This is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of this. And the only reason that you're not drinking all of it is because you're unwilling to acknowledge that you sinned at all. It's tiresome. And it prevents us from freedom. So let's take a few moments to joyfully enter into repentance together so that we can truly begin this process of transformation not carrying the baggage of, of, of past sins and past weights behind us, not dragging that into a period of transformation, but cutting that off and knowing that Jesus has taken all of that, that he paid it all, that, every, that, that, that it's forgotten and pushed as far as the east is from the west, that all of that is done with. And we can move into transformation in joy, knowing that we have been eternally redeemed now and forever in the action of God. Let's pray together. God, this is difficult. And we're thankful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's easy for us to intellectually approve, like, yes, we are all sinners in all many ways we have failed. But it's a, it's a much more difficult thing for us to genuinely take stock of our own actions and acknowledge that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And to acknowledge that I have not loved you with my whole heart, that I've gotten distracted by the things of this world and, and, I've, and I've let love for those things consume me. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I have not acknowledged that my neighbor is even as much of a person as I am. And to admit that for these things that we are truly sorry and we humbly repent, and for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us forgive and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Because we know that that is what is on the other side of the forgiveness and the freedom you offer. So help us to, to walk into that freedom together. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.